Hey, if you've got a Bible, turn to Judges 6. Um, who's your favorite Bible character while you look? I'm just curious, just kind of pulling the room. Anybody have a favorite Bible character, person in Bible history, other than Jesus? If you say Jesus, I'm coming after you. So, Paul, nice. Who? John, love it. John also. Who'd you say? Deborah. Get it, Carla. I love it. Strong biblical women. Love it. Anybody else? Oh, Renee? King David. King David. Nicole said you're still learning. Love it. So I'm going to share with you one of mine today. It's a uh, guy named Gideon. And uh, he, it, I love Gideon. He's only mentioned in about two or three chapters of the Bible. But man, he, uh, he makes such a fascinating impact. Uh, before we get going, I'll tell you, my boys made me Father's Day cards. Uh, these are awesome. These are worth, like, these are worth their weight in gold. Uh, Owens actually says, Happy Dad Day. Today, make all the dad jokes you want to. <laughs> all right. I love it. You know, there's a code to being a dad. Um, that is amazing. One, it comes with dad jokes. Uh, we looked up a bunch of them last night because my kids just always make fun of me and I try to crack them. I was going to have them, if Nick and Nikki weren't going to be here, the contingency plan was I was going to put them up here in chairs and, uh, and then just tell dad jokes until they laughed. The best one I uh, heard this week was, um, uh, oh man, what do you call a fish with a bow tie? Sophisticated. I thought that was so good. <laughs> See, Owen, they laughed. It was pretty good, right? That's part of a dad code. The other, uh, there are other parts of a dad code too. Uh, farmer's tans. Like, did any of your dad, dads have farmer's tans? Like, I've developed mine. It's, I've also got it here. Uh, wearing deck sho- shoes or sandals with socks. Every time I do this, Natalie cringes a little bit. Um, uh, fanny packs, like women are wearing fanny packs again, but I think like up until this new renaissance of women wearing fanny packs, if you're a man wearing a fanny pack, I think that is part of the dad territory. Um, bucket hats, Jimbo Tucker is like, Jimbo Tucker always has a bucket hat on, like I feel like that's such a dad uh, thing. White New Balances, does anybody wear white New Balances in here? Like Natalie and I were looking at photos of things that were so dad and it was like, if, you're, if, if a man wears those white New Balances with the navy blue in, that's like so dad. Aprons to barbecue, do you wear an apron when you barbecue? You don't? Okay, it's like the most, it's one of the most dad things. Like there's a community to being a dad. You know, Facebook has one of the things that Facebook has done well is it's created all of these micro communities, not based on geography, but based on passions and loves. And there's a community that comes with being a dad. Like you tell jokes and the other dads laugh. Like it's the funniest thing ever. And then nobody else laughs, especially the children. Uh, and there's just kind of inside stuff that comes with being a dad. I'll be honest. It's like one of the best perks of being a dad is like, the ridiculous community that can come with other dads, right? And so I love that we all need those communities. Like we, and we all have those communities, you know? For some of us, our community is based on where we're from, like our nation of origin. Like my Puerto Rican friends love being Puerto Rican. Am I right, Ruth? Like, man, you see that little Puerto Rican flag and it's like, this is, this is family right here. It might be from, a, it's an identity thing, right? Like, it might be being a dad. Like, Natalie loves cross-stitching. There's like a cross-stitching culture of like, when you meet another cross-stitcher, you'll like, she'll be like, oh, have you ever seen that? You know, like, there's a culture that comes with some of the things that we love. Like, it might be what coffee you drink in this neighborhood. Like, how many of you are Starbucks people? Natalie's holding it up. And Anna's, 
How many of you are Duncan people? Right. John Stella, you got to be honest. Like, be honest, John. When you see a Starbucks person, you turn your nose up a little bit at him, don't you? <laughs> Man's being honest in church. I love it. <laughs> nice. There it is. An open-minded man. There's a tribe to our coffee. There's these tribes, and we have all these communities. We were made for these communities. And I want to share with you today about a moment where um, one of my favorite Bible characters, Gideon, uh, finds himself in this community. Now, let me give you some backstory. If you ever read, the, if you don't know the book of Judges, uh, Nicole was just saying she's learning the Bible, learning some people in the Bible. The book of Judges is not a book about judges like in the gavel and robe and courtroom sense. The book of Judges is about the nation of Israel going into the promised land after having been enslaved for 400 years in Egypt and then wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They go into the nation of Israel. And God says to him, as long as you obey and live by faith, I'll bless you and I'll curse your enemies and I will bless you and you'll be all good. But if you begin to worship other idols, uh, chaos is going to begin to break loose. And as a nation, they begin to worship other idols. We'll see this in a moment. There's two idols that they constantly come back to, Baal and Asherah. And they constantly worship Baal and Asherah because the people who were there before them were worshiping Baal and Asherah. And so they worship these two gods and it constantly gets them into trouble. And so what happens, they begin to worship other gods and then other nations begin to come in and just drop the hammer on them. Just lay them, lay them low like, and humble them. Usually not all 12 tribes, not the whole nation, the 12 clans of Israel. Usually it would just be a clan or two that a nation would come in and begin to persecute. The people would then, uh, despair and repent. You know, it's their sin, their worship of idols that led them uh, to be persecuted. So they would repent, they would cry out to God, and God in mercy would send judges. So they weren't like judges, they were more like deliverers. They were sort of like somewhat political warriors. They were men and they were women. They were people that you would think would do it. They were people that you wouldn't think would do it. And they come in and they save God's people. And so we see 12 different judges. There's Samson. You know, Samson's the one with the long hair. There's Deborah, who Carla mentioned. So good. There's uh, a guy named Othniel, a guy named Ehud, Shamgar. I mean, these aren't the names you give your kids, most of them. But, like, there's several of them, and they're really powerful, and they do some great things, these judges. And uh, and in the story we're going to look at today, here's what happens. Uh, part of a couple of the tribes uh, get start getting picked on by this group called the Midianites. These are the people that God sends in to uh, ransack them for their sin of unbelief. And so what the Midianites are doing, they're coming in, they're stealing their crops. And uh, so you get these Midianite raiders, these Midianite pirates, essentially, and they're coming in and they are stealing the nation's crops and the people are getting hungry and there's calamity and they begin to cry out to God. And that's where we're going to pick up in verse 11 of Judges chapter 6. I'm going to kind of go through uh, almost verse by verse today and I want to explain to you, I'm going to read five or six verses and then we'll walk it back and walk through it, okay? Now the angel of the Lord came... And sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the <laughs> Abizrite. The way that, by the way, when you get to a biblical word that you don't know how to pronounce, how many of you have ever happened? Yeah, yeah. What do you do? You just read it fast and sound like an expert. <laughs> like, I don't know how to say that word, Abizrite, 
there's, I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. It's okay. Just say it fast like you know what you're talking about. So there's this guy, Joash, and the angel of the Lord comes to Joash's property, and the angel of the Lord is sitting under a tree. And, uh, and that's where uh, it says, while his son, Joash's son, Gideon, was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from Midianites. In other words, he's trying to keep the Midianites from getting their food. Why is that a big deal? Because here's what's going on. You, you beat out wheat in the open air. You would get a, kind of a, a, like a concrete or a stone um, stall, and you would beat it in the open air so that the wheat would be separated from the tares. The wheat was more dense, the tares were lighter, and so when, as you beat it out, the bad stuff that you couldn't use for bread would go away, and the good stuff would be left there. But Gideon is not beating out the wheat in the, in the area where the wheat is, is taken care of, he's beating out the wheat, where does it say? In the wine press. Now the wine press was actually usually indoors. And so here's this guy, this guy who's going to be a judge, he's going to be a deliverer, he's going to be uh, the rescuer of God's people as they repented, and here he is hiding essentially in the wine press, uh, pressing or dealing with the wheat, Gideon is desperate and he's despairing and he may even be fearful. At the very least, he's broken, but he is not in the place that you would think God's warrior would be dealing with uh, the wheat doing the family chores. And so in verse 12, it goes on, it says, and the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, if you have read this over the last hundreds of years, even a couple thousand years ago, and you hear about this guy dealing with the wheat and the wine press, you go, that guy's not a mighty man of valor. That doesn't make any sense. It's like uh, Steve Rogers and Captain America before he becomes Captain America. Like, you know, the first time Owen and I watched that movie, we were like, this, how's this guy? Look at his biceps. Like, my biceps are bigger than his. How, how is Captain America going to rescue anybody? Like, he can't do it. And this angel greets Gideon hiding in the wine press and says, Greetings, O mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you. And Gideon then said to him, um, and like I can just see Gideon looking around going, you talking to me? Like, mighty man of valor, are you talking to me? Are you sure that I'm the one that you mean here? You don't have the wrong guy. And so Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our father recounted to us, saying, didn't the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord's forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So the angel says, greetings, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you, singular, O mighty man of valor. And what does Gideon say? Hey, if the Lord is with us, why has all this bad stuff happened? Gideon pivots to talking about us, and the angel of the Lord is talking about you. And, uh, and so there's just this, like, they're not on the same page. And Gideon says, if, if God is with us, why did this happen to us? Where did this happen to us? With us, six times in that one verse, he says us. The Lord says, the angel of the Lord says, God is with you. And in the next sentence, Gideon says six times us. There's sometimes, I don't know if this ever happened to you, where God wants to speak to me and I don't want him to speak to me and I will pivot to talking about everybody else. 
Or God will call me to do something, and I will try to think, send somebody else. First time Nat and I ever came with the boys to Charlestown, we stood up at Bunker Hill and, um, and just prayed, like, God, send somebody else to start a church in this neighborhood. Send somebody else. It's too expensive. Uh, we, we are too small. We don't know what we're doing. We can't do it. God, send somebody else. Send some other Christian here. And that's kind of what Gideon is doing. He's shifting, trying to shift the angel's attention. He says, with us, to us, recounted to us, brought us from Egypt, forsaken us, given us. God is speaking to him, but he's thinking of the past, of the nation, of God's enemies. And so in verse 14, the the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours, singular, And save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? Singular. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan, again, talking about more people than himself, is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you will strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I've found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it's you who speak with me. Verse 18, please don't depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And the angel of the Lord, of the Lord, this, uh, I'll explain this a little bit more if you don't care, said, I will stay until you return. The angel of the Lord, when we see that in the Old Testament, is the presence of God with skin on. It's not an angel. We as Christians are a Trinitarian believing people. We believe that God is three in one and one in three. And there's Father Son and Spirit. And the Spirit, we'll talk about in a moment, comes and lives in us post-Pentecost when we give our lives to Christ. We see that in Acts 2. For the first time, God comes and lives in people. The Holy Spirit always was and he always will be. He is God. He is perfectly God. He's not less than. We speak to him. We speak of him as a he and we can speak to him and pray to the Holy Spirit. That's okay. He fits in a role. He, he, he tends to defer to the Father and the Son. The Father is in heaven. God the Father has never made his way to earth. The Father is ruling and reigning. He is the creator. He is who we will stand before on the day of judgment at the end and give an account of our lives and faith to. That is the Father. He does not come to earth. Jesus is the second person in the, in the Trinity. He lived on earth. Jesus is God with skin on. Jesus does not come and live in our hearts. We, in faith, trust the work of Jesus to save us. But when we become a Christian, God's spirit, not Jesus, comes and lives in us. Whenever we see God with skin on on planet earth, it is the second person of the Holy Spirit. Is everybody's brains okay? In the Old Testament, before Jesus was born, when the scripture says the angel of the Lord, typically that is the second person of the Trinity. What we're seeing here is the person who is Jesus, God with skin on, standing there that day, talking with Gideon. Man, it's sitting in my notes. I'm really sorry, but I think this is so good because there's sometimes we're going to read the angel of the Lord and it's talking about God with skin on. Gideon is literally talking with Jesus a thousand years before Jesus would be born, in a sense. So you see in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, some of you know this story, where they're thrown into the fire because they won't worship the pagan king. And the king looks and he sees him in the fire and he says, didn't we throw three people in the fire? Why is there a fourth man in the fire right now? And the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. It was literally Jesus standing in the fire with these people 
hundreds of years before he would be born. Gideon, so when you see it says the Lord or the angel of the Lord, it is the second person of the Trinity, equally God, God with skin on, and that is who Gideon is interacting with here. And that God, the Lord says, go in this might of yours, in verse 14, sent by the Lord. Listen, I want to tell you something um, as one who struggles with this. God doesn't send out strong people. God makes strong of sent people. Like God's not looking for Captain America's. God's looking for Steve Rogers who will live surrendered. God doesn't, um, God doesn't um, call the equipped. God equips the called. God doesn't uh, call the brave. God takes called people and he makes them brave. God doesn't take gifted people and call them. God takes called people and makes them gifted. This is really important because what's happened in our culture and pastors, we've been really guilty of this is we've created kind of like two classes of Christians where they're the people who are the good musicians or the good speakers or the whatevers and then everybody else just feels kind of regular and the truth of the gospel is every one of us is equally gifted. Different gifts equal gifting. And God doesn't call gifted people. You might say, God can never use me. Do you know what I used to struggle with? God can never use me. I'm not a good speaker. God can never use me. I should have been out there beating out the wheat where the wheat gets beat out, but instead I'm kind of scared and I'm doing it in the wine press. And God says, look, I don't need you to be brave, gifted, courageous, strong, have all the answers. I need you to be willing. And if you'll be willing, I will do in, with, for, and through you mighty, mighty things. And so the angel of the Lord said, go in this might of yours. And Gideon again with the question, how can I do that? My clan, my tribe, we're so weak. And my family is the weakest in the clan. And I'm the weakest in my family. Do you understand? I mean, literally, he's like saying, angel of the Lord, do you get how pathetic I am? Like, I think your Google Maps sent you to the wrong place. I think you missed this one. I am the worst. And in this moment, Gideon's eyes are on others and his eyes are on his weakness. And Gideon is looking at his feelings and he's looking at his fears and he's looking at his family and he's looking at his frailty. And God is just looking at him. God's just looking at him. And God sees the mission and God sees his own power. I want to tell you something. Satan will attack and point out and accuse you for what you've done. Satan will attack and point out and accuse you for where you came from. Satan will attack and point out and confuse you at the spot of your weakness and he will try to cripple you with it. Here's the thing. God's voice is not actually that much different. God's voice at times is also going to point out your weakness and where you came from and what you can't do. The difference is Satan will always only ever leave you with an accusation. And God's spirit will say, but I can. But I can. Listen, I'll tell people stories about what God's doing in our neighborhood. And people who've been here from a long time. I, I've got some people who are friends. Uh, I've got a really close friend from over in Roslindale. And he'll just laugh. He'll be like, man, I can't believe God's doing that in Charlestown. Maybe, maybe the Bible Belt, maybe other parts of Boston, but Charlestown, no way. And we'll just la listen. That's what God does. 
It makes no sense, but God does it. So both the Holy Spirit and the devil will remind us of our weakness and our inability. But the Holy Spirit of God will then remind us of his strength and his power and how he always gets to write the last chapter of the story. And that's what's going on here with Gideon. And so here's what happens. Gideon says, if you're, if you're for real, let me go and you prove to me. And, and the angel of the Lord says, okay, do, what you, do your thing. And so Gideon goes and he bakes a loaf of bread and he makes uh, a barbecue dinner and he brings it and he sets it before the angel of the Lord. And he says, if you're really the angel of the Lord, accept the sacrifice. And the angel of the Lord says, put all that together, pour some gravy on it, essentially make that into a shepherd's pie. And, uh, and then like the angel of the Lord touches that thing and it's like, Phew. this happens in verses 17 through 24, it just gets eat up. And in that moment, Gideon goes, that was the angel of the Lord. All right, God's for real. I'm going to do what he says. Like it was like until God, until God evaporated the shepherd's pie, um, Gideon wasn't sure if he was going to be all in or not. But that's exactly what happens. And so um, now Gideon asks for confirmation. God gives it. And now let's skip down to verse 25. Now it's about to get really good. Verse 25. Now that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord with your God, build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did just like the Lord told him, because, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So, the ba- so Baal was uh, the Syrian and the Phoenician and the Canaanite uh, male god. It was kind of the sun god. Uh, he was also like the fertility god. And uh, he was often represented by a bull. Asherah was the moon goddess. And she was actually the highest of all the gods in the pantheon of the first century or the ancient Near Easterns. And so she's the moon goddess. She's the highest goddess. And, and, uh, and Baal, they would offer him as a... So when you offered to Baal, you would make an offering. Asherah, the way you worshiped Asherah pole, you would, um, you would see hills around these communities in ancient Palestine. And they would take a tree and they would cut every branch off of it until it was just the trunk. And so you would see these huge tree trunks up on the hills, and these would become the altars to Asherah. And so Asherah and Baal, the people, God's people, Gideon's family, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, is supposed to be faithful. Gideon's family have developed these idols up on the hills, these monuments to Asherah and Baal. And the angel of the Lord says, hey, you see your family's idols? Time for you to go cut them down. You're going to do this tonight. You're going to go cut them down. And not only that, uh, the angel says, take the wood from the Asherah and cut it up and make an altar and you're going to sacrifice a bull on it. In other words, take the wood from the Asherah pole and take the symbol of the Baal God and burn them together on your family's property as a tribute to the Lord. Do you understand how ticked off his dad would be the next morning when he sees this? Like, you just took our two family gods, our protection, 
These Midianites have been pirating our land and you just took the two gods up on the hills that have been protecting us and you burned them to the Lord and the Lord hasn't defended us for centuries? Do you know what you just did, Gideon? The dad should be furious. And so uh, here's what happened. These things are worshipped everywhere. The, the equivalents today, Timothy Keller, who was pastor for years of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, once said that the three gods of New York are money, sex, and power. For there to be any movement of God in New York, uh, the followers of Christ would have to live out, therefore, biblical generosity, biblical sexuality, and biblical humility. Otherwise, the gods of New York would never fall. I would add in Boston that there are three more. I would say that we worship our sports, we worship education and innovation, and we worship our history here. To see a move of God in Boston, the idols have to be lopped off. Like they have to come down. And so uh, the angel of the Lord says, build an altar where the altar was. It's going to be a big fight. Take your family's idols down. Any additional thing to God? I don't know if you have any God plus blank in your life. Any God plus blank. This isn't a rebuke of people who aren't Christians this morning. This is saying to the people who follow Christ, who say that Jesus is our only hope, that if we have any hope, if we have any Asherahs and Baals, up on the hills of our hearts, we got to lop them off. They got to come down. And Nick names some of our struggles and the things we hang on to. Some of our functional gods are really attractive because the culture likes them, like our prosperity and all of these things. Some of them we're much more private about. We don't want anybody to know about. We don't want anybody to know that we deal with those things. But those Asherah poles, those Baal gods, those God plus blank have got to come down. And, uh, and it's amazing that before Gideon goes and takes on the Midianites, what's he do? He deals with his own family's sin. If you write down three notes today, this is an important one. Sometimes before God allows you to go fight a fight around you, he has to take down the idols within you. Sometimes before God goes and uses you to take down the idols around you, God's going to have to take down the idols within you. Who man. The Lord is dealing with me on this about um, some idols of fear. That's why I like Gideon, because I can relate to his fear. The idols of insecurity, the idols of all this. There have been so many times this week, uh, last week after sharing with you some real struggles, this week the Lord has reminded me, no, 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 I've called you, I got this, just trust me, keep walking. You're not small, you're not insignificant, you're not a fake, you're not a fraud. Like, I'm, like, trust me, walk with me. Before you take down the idols around you, you have to let God take down the idols within you. Maybe your family, maybe our church, maybe your heart. And that'll be a big, big fight sometimes. And so here's what happened. Uh, and, you know, it says that uh, he goes, um, I can't remember what I just read. Let, let me read 25 down through 27 again. I can't remember if I read it or not. The Lord said, go take it. And so he takes it. And I love it in verse 27. He, he goes at night and he takes his buddies. Because we have all of these fake ideas of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be brave, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a godly woman. We have all these crazy stereotypes that aren't rooted whatsoever in, in, in Scripture. And when God calls people, he doesn't call us to be like, Oh, I'm a Christian. I got all this figured out. Da, da, da. I'm so smart. Look at me. I'm so strong. I'm so godly. No fear. We almost never see that guy or that woman in Scripture. So often, what we actually see is really weak people who are full of mess-ups and not courage 
and God using them in incredible ways. And we see Gideon here going at night and going with his buddies, his servants, because he's so scared. He took a crew. He could not have done this alone. Like, I love getting together with other dads and examining farmer's tans and socks with deck shoes and telling dad jokes. But man, we all need a crew of people on the journey with us. It is hard to follow Christ in Boston. If you agree, will you just nod your head? It's hard to follow Christ, for real, in Boston. It's not easy. You need a crew of people doing it with you, just like Gideon. You need a crew. You can't do it alone. Like, this is why we do community groups. This is why so many of you go out to eat on Sundays. It is hard to live this journey alone. Uh, Nat and Juliana went for a walk the other night, and Nat was like, that was fantastic. Just to, just go walk and talk. And so many of you do this. Nikki and, uh, and Teresa do this a lot. Like, I spend time with Howard almost every week. Nick and Drew get together more. Like, I'm getting together with Renee tomorrow. You're, we cannot do this thing alone. We need one another to live. And then the other thing that's funny is that Gideon went at night as if we thought he was not cowardly enough. He goes at night. Is that cowardice? No. It's uncomfortably courageous obedience and faith. God may call you to uncomfortable, courageous obedience and faith. That is not cowardice. That is uncomfortable, courageous obedience and faith. That's what God wants from us. Uncomfortable, courageous obedience and faith. If it's not a little scary, it probably is not God-sized. If God's called, if God has called you to something and it doesn't make you a little nervous, it's probably not God calling you. The things that God asks us to do usually ought to scare the bejesus out of us. It just really should. Uncomfortable, courageous obedience and faith. Courage isn't the absence of fear. Christian courage is obeying God in the presence of fear. Whether it's a new job or a surgery or a health diagnosis or a witness to a neighbor or a leap of faith. And so here's what happens. Gideon gets a clear call from God. He has a clear enemy who must be lopped off and he has clear allies in the fight. When the fight before you becomes bigger than the fear in you, look out, Satan. When the fight before you becomes bigger than the fear in you, look out, Satan. When your friends with you are bigger than the fears in you, look out, hell. When the friends with you are bigger than the fears in you, look out, hell. And when God's call on you becomes bigger than the fear in you, look out, idols. And that's what happened to Gideon that day. I want to show you uh, a, a scene from The Magnificent Seven, 2016. Um, I want to tell you, you were made for a fight. This is one of my favorite. I'm sorry, we're about to show a Western uh, with a swear word and a murder scene in it. But the murder scene won't be bad, and it's all good. Uh, but I just feel like this is a really good picture of what our Christian journey should be like. So for four minutes, I'm going to show you a scene from one of my favorite movies of all time with Denzel Washington as the savior cowboy. This is awesome.
Afternoon, gentlemen. Town's got a ban on firearms. Check them in. Get them back on your way out. You don't mind me asking, but how is it all of you go so well healed? These men are deputies. Awful lot of deputies for such a small place, ain't it? What's his story? Ah, my, uh, manservant. He's harmless. Saved his life in Shanghai. Dead of honor in the life. Now you don't mind giving up those guns, do you? Absolutely. Lord and order, I say. Sheriff? Now, I must tell you that I'm more than happy to cooperate. I can't say the same thing for my compadres behind you. Quite a batch of strays. I'll say a prayer for you. You know, a, a little prayer. Yeah, you'll make a hell of a rug. And you'll be murdered by the world's greatest lover. All right. All right. What's your aim here, mister? Well, I hear that there are some Cowards running security here, so I figured we'd come down here and look after all this gold. Cowards? Blackstone, detective agents, cowards. Now, Blackstones are good. Union busting, back shooting, homesteaders, women, but you put them up against some real men, men that know what they're doing. You sure you don't want my gun? You do know who we work for, right? The force he can bring to bear. You tell Bo, if he wants his town, come see me. I don't believe he heard you. Mecco!
Don't you wish you knew what happened next? Man, I love Denzel Washington in that movie so much. That movie is probably, I was telling Renee earlier, uh, that movie is probably the most, one of the most Christian movies I've ever seen in my life. Like, it is so good uh, in showing, like, man, here is Denzel Washington with this crew of nobodies, and they are ready to take out the people who came in and took hostage, uh, essentially, a people. And I see Gideon in that. Like, you don't get this sense. Like, you, you get the sense that Denzel is just compelled to set these people free. And, um, and I love it. Like, you were made for a fight with a crew in faith. Now, here's what happens. Let me tell you the end of the Gideon story. In verse 28, I'm just going to read to you the, the end of this portion. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, and I can just see it being just like this scene, like you've got the sort of spaghetti western music, and you've got the standoff of like, here's the good guys and the bad guys. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, son of Joash, has done this thing. And then the men of the town said to Joash, they talked to his dad, bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal? Will you fight for Baal or will you save Baal? Whoever contends for Baal shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon began to be called Jerob Baal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. So you've got courageless Gideon who now gets this new name that says, let the idols deal with him. Don't even bother fighting him because God is on his side and he will take you down. And so in verse 33, now the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abiasrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers through all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali and they went out to meet them. In other words, he called, all the tri- he called all the tribes in the region and said, guys, it's time to go to war. He took on a small war and taking down those idols. And now it's time for the big, big battle. And uh, Gideon's dad seems to repent. Like Gideon's dad should have been the maddest of anybody. And his dad says, I'm not taking out my son. You're not going to go get him either. He actually was right in calling us to take down these idols. And so the next battle, that next 33 through 35, we see there's bigger stakes, bigger fight, bigger allies, but the same God. Gideon has more people around him. The stakes are bigger. There's a bigger fight, but it's the same God. The Spirit of the Lord, verse 34 says, clothe Gideon. I want to tell you some gospel realities really fast. One, it says in verse 34 that the Spirit of the Lord on that day clothed Gideon. In other words, if you can imagine God kind of wrapping himself, wrapping Gideon in himself. But if you're a follower of Christ, the Spirit of the Lord actually lives in you. In you. The Lord lives in you. You were made to fight battles that were really big. I was too. But we fight them, Christians with the Spirit of the Lord in us, and He never leaves. A second gospel reality, 
uh, there comes that moment where Gideon says, oh, if you're the real deal, prove it. And he does the shepherd's pie. Listen, Jesus is that. Jesus is the proof. The cross is the proof. When we say, God, prove to me that you're with me. Prove to me that you're calling me. Prove to me that I have courage beyond my strength. We can look to the cross and see all the proof that God is with us. God will deliver us. God will give us everything that we possibly need. I want to tell you, in light of the gospel, the enemy has already lost. These are battles, not wars. Satan is already de- defeated. I love the Magnificent Seven. It's like, it was made originally in 1960. They redid this new one in 2016. Owen and I will probably be watching it this weekend. He came up to let me know that that was awesome. And uh, it's, it's, it's probably wildly inappropriate for a dad to watch with his nine-year-old, which is exactly why we're going to do it probably this weekend, right? Like, here's this movie. I knew exactly how it would end. It's a gospel story. The good guys weren't going to lose. Not going to lose. Christians, we fight from victory. Jesus has already won the battle. There's some mopping up campaigns. Juneteenth is becoming, as I learn more and more about it, one of my favorite holidays that we celebrate because of what it says in light of the gospel. For two and a half years, there were people who were free and nobody had told them they were free. And amen, right, Rochelle? And on June 19th, 1865, after having been, after the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863, two and a half years later, people who were freed but were still living as slaves received the good news that for two and a half years they had been free and they weren't slaves anymore. And this is the gospel. This is the gospel. We are free. We don't fight for victory. We don't fight as slaves. We live as free people and we fight from victory. Jesus' victory. This is the gospel. Gideon had already won when he trusted Christ, when he trusted God. And then finally, the church is God's gift to fearful, imperfect, uncomfortably courageous people. Our confidence is in the promises, the presence, the declaration, and the people of God, not our ability, courage, personality or resources i want to encourage you to pick a fight i want to encourage you to pick a fight i think christians i was talking with my friend drake Ritchie yesterday he lives right over by eden street park here in the neighborhood and he goes what are you preaching tomorrow for father's day and i was like oh i'm telling our church that uh i'm telling our church about gideon and i'm telling our church that you know most christians in america their biggest fear is fear they're just scared of everything and so we don't ever try anything Christians in America are some of the most gutless people when you realize that Jesus has already won the war. And there's addiction and broken families and injustice and economic oppression and areas where broken homes and anxieties and insecurities and fears and all this stuff that we can be winning. And we sometimes forget that Jesus has already won the battle. And we're free. And we need to fight from victory. And Christians need to be a little braver. And we need to go pick a fight. And he goes, oh man, that's so good. I've I've never heard a pastor say that. Go get them. And I was like, and specifically, I'm going to tell the men in our church, go pick a fight. Go pick a fight. It's okay to pick a fight. Stare down lostness. Look addiction in the eye. Look at a broken marriage or a marriage on the brink and say it doesn't get the last word. Look at injustice, sickness, anxiety, attacks, idolatry in our city and in our hearts. Lop them down. Take them on. The Lord is with us. Listen, I'm not a preacher. It's like the... the Say, oh, J.D.'s a preacher is like the least compelling thing you will ever call me. Like, please don't call me that. 
It sounds so boring. It just sounds so boring to me. The idea, I'm a preacher. A pastor, you can call me a pastor all day long. I'm good with that. I would prefer, uh, I would prefer that you call me a missionary. Not to my face. I mean, this is my missionary, J.D. Like, you can call me Pastor J.D. or just J.D. But I don't want to be just a preacher. My job is not to get up here and give talks. My job is to live on mission with what God's doing in this community, in this world. And watch people who are enslaved to Baal and Asherah see the idols come down. And watch people who've been oppressed by Midianite pirates be set free. You're not just a dad. You're not just a mom. You're not just a teacher. You're not just an accountant. You're not just a nurse. You're not just an entrepreneur. You and I are warriors. We are idol topplers. We are women and men of valor. We are Baal contenders. We are clothed by the Spirit of God. We are filled with the Spirit. And we are meant to fight and win. But the victory is not ours. The victory is Jesus. And that's the gospel. Let me pray for us. God, I remember being a kid and like having my little, you know, cap guns and wanting to go in and like be the hero <laughs> and sort of playing these, these fight scenes with our little plastic guns that were awesome. And, and Lord, like you've invited us into real battle. There are people in our community oftentimes fighting and sadly too often losing battles against uh, injustice, against addiction, against anxiety, against a marriage that is in real trouble, against broken relationships between fathers and their children. Uh, God, we find ourselves in the midst of battle, but the war is won. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are the hero who rides in and saves the day, not us. So we don't need this tremendous courage we just need obedience. We just need faith. And we don't have to do it alone, God. We need to circle up with our crew and walk into battle and stare down the enemy and say, today you're going to die. Addiction is going to die in Charlestown. God, broken marriages are going to become a thing of the past in this neighborhood. God, we're going to fight to make sure that everybody has opportunity because of Christ. And we're not going to lean into City Hall or the State House or Washington, D.C. to fix brokenness, God. The power of the gospel is strong enough. And Lord, we're going to stare down the anxiety in our hearts and the depression in our hearts and the fear and the pride and all the little idols that sit up on the hills of our hearts. And God, we're going to know one another enough and love one another enough to speak into those things and cut down the idols, and burn a sacrifice to the Lord Jesus right in the midst of it, and call people to repentance. And it will begin in our house, Lord, right here in the church, right here in our homes. And I don't say this because I'm so courageous and prophetic. I say it on the authority of Jesus Christ, who died on Calvary's hill and rose three days later so that your people would fight and win battles in the midst, in the, in the, in the, in the wake of the victory, the war that you won at Calvary. So Lord, help us pick a fight. God, help us be people who will ride in knowing that our victory is secure and speak prophetically and powerfully to broken things in our lives, in our homes, in our community, our city, in our nation, in our world. God, let us try daring things. Daring things. And we thank you that we go in your power. Lord, if there's anybody here 
or anybody watching by Facebook Live who's never surrendered themselves to you. God, we're not trying to raise up church people or grow a church. God, we want people who will enlist their lives in your family and in the war and the battle that you are winning, even for their souls. So Lord, if there are people watching who've never given their lives to Christ, I pray that they would turn from their sin, trust Christ, invite your spirit into their life to change them and make them new. And I pray that they would walk with you, joining in with the church, going public with their decision and enlist in this thing. This isn't quiet, churchy, silly religion business, God. This is war. This is battle. And I pray that people would join your family and join your fight. We love you. We honor you. We celebrate you. God, we honor the dads. I look around at these men, and I think that you've called them to so much. And I'm so excited to be their pastor, Lord. I love you. We honor you today, even as we honor the men of our church. In Christ's name, amen.